two weeks ago when he jumped texts out of order and said that he sprung that on me on a Friday afternoon, almost close to a Friday evening, actually. And uh, that part is true. That part is true. Um, but I, I, I just said, you know, Brad, that's, that's fine. If you want to take my text, my next week text, and you want to switch and go backwards later on, that's fine. But you just have to pay me a nickel every time you say the words too funny. And uh, it's, it's been three weeks, and he owes me $7.65. <laughs> too funny, huh? Seriously, though, uh, Brad jumped a week in our series in 1 Corinthians, and then last week I had to jump backwards again and go back to chapter 1. And so it may feel like now we're in chapter 5 and we skipped ahead rather quickly, and if you feel that way, well, it's pretty accurate because we haven't really touched much on chapters 2 and 3, and uh, we're skipping 4 entirely. And the reason for doing that is because the themes have mostly been addressed in these earlier chapters. Paul, just like us, when we have conversations, when we write, uh, we kind of say a number of the same things over and over again. And so uh, we don't feel like we're really missing out too much on those chapters specifically. And uh, we're certainly not bypassing anything intentionally. If we were going to bypass a chapter intentionally, it would probably be chapter 5 and chapter 6 because we get into some more significant and challenging teaching. And we certainly have a very different topic that emerges in chapter 5, and that is where we are going to be this morning. But before we get to chapter 5, I want to look back at a really, really old story. It's a story about two brothers that is recorded in the book of Genesis. The older brother's name is Cain. Uh, The younger brother's name was Abel. And there's a pretty good chance you've probably heard this story before. But what I want to remind us about is the conversation that God and Cain have with each other in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. The Lord God asks Cain a question. He asks him, where is your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know, which is a lie. He knows exactly where he was because Cain killed Abel. So presumably he knows where his body is, he knows how he's doing, he knows exactly what happened. And then Cain says something else. He doesn't just say, I don't know, he says something else to God. You remember what he says? He says, am I my brother's keeper? It's a very curious question. And God doesn't answer it. Uh, There's no response by God, there doesn't seem to be much of a clue later on in the story about what God thought about that question. Certainly, there's kind of a presumed answer, but there's nothing emphatically that's stated there. And that question just kind of hangs in the air for us to consider as the rest of that story and the rest of the biblical story progresses. Am I my brother's keeper? And I was looking at this this text again yesterday. What's intriguing to, to me about this question is this is the first human question that's recorded in the biblical story. I'm not suggesting that Adam and Eve and some of their offspring didn't ask each other questions up to this point, but it's the first one that's recorded in the story. The serpent has asked a question, God asks several questions, and this is the first one that a human being asks. Am I my brother's keeper? Is he? Is Cain his brother's keeper? I feel like many of us ask ourselves this question from time to time. Am I responsible for other people? 
If so, well, then who is my brother and who is my sister? Are you responsible for knowing what they're doing and how they're doing and where they are? Do you somehow bear responsibility for them? Are you, am I, our brother's keeper? Well, Megan has already read our text from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul addresses a very serious problem. It's actually a two-part problem. It's not just one thing that he talks about. It morphs into a much more serious issue. The first problem is pretty easy to understand. There's sexual immorality within the Corinthian church. And Paul describes this instance as being even worse than what the pagans are doing. And by pagans, Paul is referring to the Gentiles, the people in Corinth who are not Jews, not part of the church. They are the outsiders. And Paul points to them as if to say, even the people, even the people that have no concept, no relationship, no interest in God, even they understand how odd and how terrible and how horrific this type of relationship is. They know how immoral that is. And so the situation is this. There's a man having sex with his father's wife. And as Gordon Fee points out in his commentary, the verb to have when used in a sexual context is a euphemism for an enduring sexual relationship. So this is not a a one-night stand. This is not an oops or something like that. This is a continual relationship between this man and his father's wife. And because this man's relationship is referred to with respect to his father, the most likely situation is that this woman is not his biological mother, but it's his stepmother. That's probably what we have going on here. There's even a possibility that his father is no longer living. We don't know this for sure. Uh, We just know that the two of them are engaged in a relationship that is immoral. And the specific situations don't matter all that much because we can look back to Leviticus 18 and we look back at the Levitical law there and there's very specific regulations about inappropriate, sinful, immoral sexual relationships and this clearly violates one of them. In fact, the specific details in Leviticus 18, it it outlines a number of of specific things and one of them is, is do not have sex with your father's wife. And so this man is clearly sinning. Interestingly enough, nothing is really said about the woman. So it seems the situation is that this man is part of the group. He's part of the church. Uh, The woman is not. And so there's really nothing said about her from Paul's perspective. But Paul very much understands that this incestuous relationship is also shameful to the culture at large. And that's significant as well because the Corinthian culture from everything that we know through history, was extremely tolerant of many sexual practices, but even they condemned incest. And so while this is a significant issue to Paul, this man's behavior, it's not as important as the second problem that Paul identifies. The Corinthian church is not appalled by this man's behavior. According to the report that Paul has received, the church is not at all grieved by what is happening at all. It's like they don't care. In fact, he even questions them about their pride. They are proud. They're not mourning the sad choices of this man and the turmoil that will always follow the heels of sin. They're not taking any measures to remove him from their fellowship. No, the report that finds its way to Paul indicates that they are proud. Or your version of the Bible may say they are puffed up or arrogant in verse 2. 
So Paul makes a very clear link between the pride of the people and their unwillingness to take action in this situation. But for us, this link is not very clear. Maybe the Corinthians are proud of their own spiritual maturity, which is a theme that we've seen in the last few weeks in the first few chapters of this book. But their pride would look even more foolish after considering that this man's sin has gone unchecked. So maybe that's the connection that he makes. Corinthians, you're so proud, you're, you're so in this other world of how spiritually advanced you are, and then look what's going on. Your own brother is involved in this immoral activity, and you're not doing anything about it. This is just proof, again, that you guys are wayward as a church. Or maybe the Corinthians have kind of absorbed this understanding of, of the, the culture, or they've, they've twisted a little bit of the gospel truth, and they feel like this man's behavior somehow showcases this newfound freedom that they have in Christ. Maybe they're thinking, there's no more law anymore. I'm completely free and forgiven of my sin. There's no condemnation. So any of us can act however we want because everything is permissible. That's a theme that comes out in chapter 6, which Pastor Brad will look at next week. Everything's permissible for me and for you, so why not? Let's do whatever we would like to do. Now, either interpretation is possible with respect to pride, but regardless of the connection that Paul is drawing from here, the biggest surprise of this passage is that Paul shifts his attention away from this specific man, and he centers it onto the church. He moves away from the individual that is, is clearly in violation of, of what God would want him to do, and he spends all of his attention now speaking and counseling the church for their responsibility in this. Sexual immorality is a serious matter, and Paul's going to return to this theme in chapter 6. But in this instance, Paul has grave concerns for the church because of their lack of response to the situation. I'm going to skip down to verse 6 and pick up the metaphor that Paul uses to illustrate his frustration. After stating that their boasting is not good, Paul returns to his favorite tactic, which is asking a rhetorical question. He says in verse 6, Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Now, this would have been an obvious answer. Uh, It's not so obvious to me. I almost do zero baking, but I think it would have been very common to them probably like one bad apple can spoil the bunch. And, and so the understanding is it, there's an impact, right? Like something significant happens when, when you have something harmful that's surrounded by, by other things. There's a transitory effect there. But the expression goes a lot deeper than that. And Paul also helps us uh, with this with an analogy. So he's not just picking up yeast and dough because it's it's something common that they would have understood. He's actually going back to an Old Testament metaphor. He's referring to the Passover, which is also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Paul makes a comparison between the people of Israel and the church of Corinth. Just as the Israelites chose lambs and sacrificed them as part of the Lord's instructions, so too was Jesus chosen to be sacrificed. And just as Israel was told to remove all leaven from their homes, Paul instructs those in Corinth to remove all leaven from the church. In both instances, and pretty much every single instance in the Bible where leaven or yeast is mentioned, it's a symbol of sin. And the community must be purified of it in order to be set apart, in order to be made pure and distinct from all others as God's chosen people. As Richard Hayes explains in his commentary, 
The blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the houses marks Israel out as a distinct people under God's protection, spared from the power of destruction at work in the world outside. In the same way, Paul's metaphor suggests the blood of Christ marks the Corinthians as a distinct people. We say the word holy here and there. We sing songs about it. We refer to it. We read about it in Scripture. The word holy means set apart, distinct, different, purified. And Paul is suggesting that because God's people have been sanctified, because they've been made holy and purified by Jesus Christ, they cannot afford to have sin remain in their community. They can't afford to have a man with unrepentant and unchecked sin go on in their community without that being challenged. Choosing not to do anything threatens their identity as the people of God, and it threatens part of their purpose as the holy people of God, which is to proclaim the life-changing work of the gospel. Craig Bloomberg writes, The atonement of Jesus was not intended to free us to sin, but to liberate us from sin. That's the, that's the purpose of, of Christ, his, his sanctification, his, his resurrection, his destruction of sin. Not that we would return back to death and go back to our folly, but that we would be freed from it. Not that we are free to sin, but to liberate us from sin. But in this situation, the people of Corinth are stuck in a trance of apathetic pride. Now, Paul is about to give them some very specific instructions, but before he does, he reminds them of something he wrote in a previous letter. He reminds them not to associate with sexually immoral people, but he qualifies this with an explanation. He did not mean the people of this world. He didn't mean the people of this world, the immoral people who do not share the same faith and have not expressed their desire to follow Jesus. Paul says if he had meant this, well, then followers of Jesus would have to leave the world. Because how would they be able to interact with anyone? No, what Paul meant to say is that the people of Corinth should treat their brothers and sisters in the faith differently than those outside of the church. It's not their job to pass judgment on the men and women they interact with beyond the church. Paul says, it's not my business to judge those people. That's God's job. But... And this is maybe the most critical point in this passage that Paul makes. It is your job to judge those inside the church. And having said this, Paul repeats a command that was originally given to the people of Israel and that is repeated several times in the book of Deuteronomy. Expel the wicked person from among you. Deep breath, right? Now, there's a lot that I haven't covered in this passage. I've skipped over Paul's instructions about having the immoral man handed over to Satan. And I haven't touched what Paul means when he talks about his sinful nature being destroyed, but his spirit being saved. I haven't defined what sexual immorality is and how it relates to the other sins that are listed in verses 10 and 11. Many verses, many uh, sins that I think you and I think, oh, that's just part of life. Um, Certainly not as significant as sexual immorality. Pastor Brad's going to pick up this topic next week in chapter 6. But in chapter 5, in these 13 verses, there's a lot of meat. And there are parts of it that are difficult to understand, but I think even more significant than that, there's a lot here that's really, really clear. Some passages of the Bible are hard to understand, 
Other passages are hard to apply, and there are others that are both hard to understand and hard to apply. But in my opinion, this is a passage that's actually pretty easy to understand, but still hard to apply. The application is difficult because of the question that Craig Blomberg asked in his commentary. How and when do we practice church discipline in settings other than first century Corinth? How and when do we today practice church discipline in settings other than first century Corinth? We can understand the seriousness of that situation, right? Because this brother in the faith is not here in our church. Uh, We can think about that from 2,000 years ago and that setting, but how do we adopt these principles and make them effective today? here in our congregation, here in our church. Now, I want to get to this question, but this question assumes something that I don't want to assume we're on the same page about. This question assumes that we already understand the question of why. Why is it necessary to confront believers who are not living out their faith? Why do we need church discipline at all? Well, there's two major reasons that come to mind to the question of why. And the first is this, for the sake of the name. We approach believers who are unrepentant of their sin for the sake of the name. And that phrase, the sake of the name, comes from a few passages in the New Testament where the name refers to Jesus. Followers are sent out on mission because of the name Apostles rejoice when they are beaten and humiliated because of the name. And if I can extend this phrase just a little bit, the people of the church devote themselves to one another for the sake of the name. The name represents the reputation and the teaching and the rapport of Jesus Christ. And this is not just an idea in the New Testament, that somehow how we live our lives is an indication and a revelation of what Jesus is doing in our lives. This is an idea that goes back to God's holiness and the way that he has always interacted with his people. We see this way back in the Old Testament as well. We see it in his plan of the name being preserved and exalted. Part of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is for his descendants to develop a great name and for all the peoples of the earth to be blessed through Abraham's offspring. God will become known and exalted through the people who he is in covenant with. This feels similar to what Paul is pointing to here in 1 Corinthians. How can you let a man in your church call himself a Christian while he engages in blatant sin that even people outside the church recognize is wrong? How can this possibly carry out the hope of blessing the people in the world? Don't let this impact your credibility and your witness as the church. Don't do this to the name. How can we be Christ's body if we tolerate unrepentant sin? How can we represent Christ if we don't turn away from sin, the very death that has enslaved us? I feel like there is a general resistance against taking measures to confront a believer about their sin. And I'm not talking about any particular situation here at Jericho Ridge or to any specific person here. I'm just sharing an observation that I have about the church at large. I think generally, most Christians, most followers of Jesus, when they think about church discipline, about confronting someone in sin, they they balk a little bit. They take a step back. And I mean, for good reason, right? I mean, which one of us 
naturally have that compulsion to say, I'm ready to go. When can I go to that meeting? I would love to talk to that sister. I would love to talk to that brother. I don't think the typical Christian shows passion or conviction about the area of confronting an unbeliever, uh, uh, sorry, an unrepentant believer. I don't think there's much hope even invested in the idea of through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the relationship that we have, we can help this person, we can remind them of their folly and turn them around and have them restored back by the community. Why is there such an aversion to discipline? Discipline is handed out by other organizations and groups, schools, corporations, associations, union. They understand the need to address inappropriate behavior, right? They aren't afraid to confront people who have violated the values and the standards and the ethics of their community. Why should it be any different for the church? I tried thinking of examples of organizational discipline this week, and I and I thought of the extreme one. I mean, I, I follow sports, so I always think in the world of sports. And I thought to myself, I mean, I know there's unions out there, there's businesses, there's uh, different um, labor groups of people, and they have all their standards of conducts and, and what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, and what suspensions look like and leaves and all that sort of stuff. But I thought about Major League Baseball. I mean, boy, even Major League Baseball has standards. It took them a few decades of embarrassment with men who were built like me that weighed 280 pounds with muscles coming out of different parts of their bodies before they finally did something. But Major League Baseball has standards. It's not perfect, but players actually get suspended now for taking performance-enhancing drugs. Pete Rose, the all-time leader in hits, is not in the Hall of Fame still. He's never been reinstated by baseball because he gambled the unforgivable sin in baseball in the 80s. He's still there, ostracized by the community because according to their standards, that was the right and appropriate thing to do. Why? For the integrity of the game, apparently. You remember the scandal a few months ago involving Brian Williams, the NBC News anchor? He was found to have reported false information And so he was subsequently suspended by NBC for six months. I remember seeing how his work colleagues responded to this news because then they had to report the news on the former news anchor. And I remember one one anchor, how she phrased this. Uh, She said something to the effect of, of respecting Brian and loving Brian and feeling for Brian and all the difficulties that he was going through, but at the same time, time, she understood the importance of maintaining journalistic integrity and for the need of NBC to assure its audience that accurate information was being communicated. I found that to be a very interesting blend between saying, we love this man, and we wish it weren't this way, but at the same time, if we swept this under the carpet, then what does it mean for what all of us do here? How terrible is it that the church, and again, I'm referring to the the church, the worldwide church here, how terrible is it that we have a sad history of ignoring sinful behavior for the sake of one individual instead of for the sake of the name? Pastors embezzling money, women and children being abused, powerful people running over whoever they want to because they feel like their position or their money or their influence somehow gives them the right to do so. 
How sad is it that the explanation for not doing something about it sometimes include not wanting to bring shame or dishonor to that person who was guilty of those things? What about the shame of misrepresenting Christ? What about the shame of misrepresenting the church, the body of Christ? In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Richard Hayes writes, We must remind ourselves again and again that Paul's primary concern is not the sin of individuals, but the health and integrity of the church as a corporate body. Those who commit sexual sins or pursue litigation against their brothers and sisters in the faith are doing damage not only to themselves, but also to the community. Consequently, the community must act to preserve its unity and its identity as the sanctified people of God. But I think there's a bigger reason for the hesitation around church discipline. Yes, it involves the sake of the name. It involves the image of who we bear as image bearers of Christ. But I think a bigger issue for us is that it feels unloving and it feels non-tolerant. Unions and corporations and businesses, they can enforce whatever standards they come up with, but how dare the church do this? The church should be a place of unconditional love, right? Unconditional acceptance. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He wasn't judgmental. Everyone loved this guy. And there is some truth to this. This is exactly what Paul emphasizes in verse 12. What business of it is mine to judge those outside the church? And it can be tempting to take the words that Jesus states in Matthew chapter 7, famous words on the Sermon on the Mount, and then apply them to every person in every situation. People in our family, people in the church, people at the store, people across town. But as Craig Bloomberg points out in his commentary, many of us hear Jesus say, judge not, or you too will be judged. And we think this means, or we want this to mean, I won't judge you if you don't judge me. Even though what Jesus is actually saying is, do not harbor private judgment against another so that you may not be ultimately judged by God. Jesus wasn't timid when he spoke to those who claimed to be following God. He called out their hypocrisy. He challenged their theology. He even weakened their authority by telling others not to listen to them. Jesus is the perfect representation of love, but let's not fool ourselves into thinking that Jesus was tolerant. If we really consider what love is, we will find that the loving thing to do is not always the most comfortable thing to do. If living in right relationship with Jesus truly is life, and if sin truly is death, which is what we see all throughout the pages of Scripture, then the most loving thing we can do as a church is to point our brothers and our sisters back to Jesus. In the book of James, he ends his letter by writing, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the faith and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The heart behind approaching a person is not to condemn them, but to save them from their sin. We don't go with anticipation of condemning them and feeling self-righteous. 
and having grounds to feel like we're better than them, we go with the motivation of the Holy Spirit acting and that person changing, repenting, being restored to the community. It's to remind them of the commitment that they made to Jesus and the commitment that we made to them as the church to be co-workers together, partners, teammates, living out the gospel. As a fellow brother or sister in Christ, it's the most loving thing we could do. Why do we need church discipline? Because it's necessary to love one another. Because it's necessary to honor the name of Jesus. And it's because we're, we're commanded to do. We do it out of love for our Lord, and we do it out of love for one another. But how do we do this? How do we do this practically? Because this letter is really, really old, and it wasn't written to us. So how do we apply the principles? Well, let's start with an application that's really simple. It's not easy to implement, but it's really simple to understand. Don't judge people outside the church. Don't judge people outside the church. Paul told the Corinthians that this was none of their business, so I don't see how it could be any of our business either. Jesus didn't command us to judge our enemies. He commanded us to love our enemies. Do you want someone judging you according to their standards? Do you want someone judging you according to Sharia law? Like, how would you feel if Muslims began making comments about the type of food that you eat and the number of times that you pray? Your job is not to use the Bible as a rule book against people who have never read the Bible. Don't judge people who aren't believers. That's not your job. It's God's job. Our job is to love those people. Our job is to befriend those people. The second application is more difficult because I don't have a perfect answer to the question of how we discipline people within the church. And I certainly don't have a specific application. But I feel that in order for church discipline to happen well, and in order for it to fit the purposes for which it was designed for, it has to happen within trusted community. It has to, do, has to happen with relationships. It has to happen between people who have made commitments to Jesus and commitments to one another to hold fast to the faith and to keep one another faithful, to keep one another persevering and going on the road together. This is one reason why we have membership here at our church. There's an expectation within membership that because we are united in our mission to follow Jesus, we will point one another back to Jesus if we ever lose our way. It happens both ways. This doesn't mean that you have to have your life in order before you become a member, but it does mean that you want a loving community around you to support you in your desire and your intentions to follow Jesus. And it gives us an understanding for who has made this commitment and who hasn't. In a sense, this is going to sound bad, but it's true. In a sense, covenant membership gives us permission to judge one another. It helps us know, who are we judging? Who are we holding to this commitment? And which ones of us aren't ready? And there's a number of reasons for that. And that's fine at this stage. Helps us know who are we judging? Who are we equipping, disciplining if necessary? 
on the pathway to following Jesus. This is one reason why we have small groups in our church as well. They provide opportunities for relationships to grow, friendships to form, people to challenge one another, bear each other's burdens, and at times approach one another in love and say, I have concerns about where your life is headed. Friend, brother, sister, choose life. Don't don't choose death. Don't choose those consequences. Don't choose sin. Come in this direction. Let's remember the commitment that you have made. And let me fulfill my commitment to you by helping you be restored. My question for you as we finish this morning is this. Do you have people that you can do this with? Can you think of a couple of names? People that you would approach if you had a concern that they were disobeying God with no sense of remorse? Do you have the type of relationship with them that you would feel the conviction to do that and the courage to follow through with it? Can you think of anyone that would do that for you? That if you began making choices that were sinful with no sense of, no sense of repentance, no plan of changing and submitting that to God, can you think of someone that would approach you and for the sake of your life, they would do something so loving as to point you back to Jesus? In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Richard Hayes writes, the fact that the church so rarely exercises this disciplinary function is a sign of its unfaithfulness. Our failure to do so is often justified in the name of enlightened tolerance of differences, but in fact, tolerance can become a euphemism for indifference and lack of moral courage. I need to confess that our system, the way that we engage in church discipline, we point people back to to Jesus, it's, it's, like, it's pretty imperfect. Like, we don't have a great structure for doing this. We don't always know how we're doing this, when we're doing this. But we want to take these words seriously. We want to be true brothers and sisters to one another. So friends, my prayer today is that we may have the courage to love one another enough that we will lovingly judge one another because we really are each other's keepers. Let's pray. Lord, these are the words of truth. We sang about standing on the solid rock. We know your words, Jesus, where uh, you talk about the image of someone building their life and their house on the rock and the stability that that provides versus a person who builds it on sand and how it's not sustainable. God, for as difficult as some of the words of Scripture are, and there are many passages, Lord, we recognize that the indication of a faithful person to you is one who is obedient. And so, Lord, I pray that you would equip us with courage and with love for one another. I pray for those of us who do not have faithful friends here within the church or in other communities that can point them back to you and whom they can point back. Lord, I pray that that you would help us take initiative 
and direction in establishing that place where we can love one another faithfully. God, we thank you for your church. As we go from this place, we pray that we would be faithful representatives of your image, that we would not judge those outside the church, but that we would be faithful in judging those within it. Amen.